I Think Therefore I Fan podcast is generously supported by our listeners. If you would like to support I Think Therefore I Fan, go to our webpage, that's IThinkThereforeIFan.com, all one word, click on the link that says Donate, and follow the instructions. Your support is greatly appreciated. Spoiler warning time. In this episode, we discuss The Good Place, No Exit, Ender's Game, Saturday Night Live, I Love Lucy, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, Veronica Mars, and The Matrix. You've been warned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We're your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. Welcome. Thanks for, for joining us today. So um, this is the second in our four-episode sequence where we recorded interviews with folks who do research in philosophy and pop culture from the annual meeting of the PCA, right, the Popular Culture Association in Washington, D.C. So this week we'll be talking about um, the television show The Good Place with some folks that have edited a book on The Good Place, um, a book on philosophy in The Good Place, and... Um, also interviewed one of the contributors to that book. Um, and we also spoke to someone who is an expert in the philosophy of comedy. Um, but you didn't know there was such a thing. But There are lots of interesting philosophical questions related to comedy. We've had some ethics bull cases about these questions lately. So, you know, what makes a work uh, or a bit of language comedic is an interesting question. Uh, aesthetic questions about what kinds of things are funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there an objective fact of the matter in terms of what, uh, when it comes to the question of what kinds of things are funny? Then, of course, there are lots of ethical questions related to humor. Yeah, yeah, uh, right. We're, we're really testing the limits of, um, of humor these days in a way that we haven't previously, right? So, Well, you might think, sure, testing the limits of humor, but then there's, I think, some pushback uh, from a lot of circles when it comes to what... Co- comedians are allowed to say, right? Mm-hmm. They're free speech issues. Uh, uh, but some people think that comedy with certain content should, you know, that kind of content should never be explored in mm-hmm. comedic work. Uh, so, yeah, lots of interesting philosophical questions. Uh, what the role of comedy is in our lives. Mm-hmm. So what is there? Are there objective facts about what's funny? So I'm, I'm just going to put this out there, and I know people aren't going to agree with it. Mm-hmm. Um Certain, not all, but certain dad jokes are universally objectively funny. Oh, yeah. Um, and Regardless of whether Henry th- thinks so. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and that's the only thing, right? Um, <laughs> that are objectively fun. That yeah, yeah, fun. yeah. You know, the, the <laughs> thing I do every night at 8.50 where I say my elbow hurts because I have tendonitis is objectively funny. <laughs> um, other stuff, not so much. <laughs> okay, I just wanted to get that in the podcast, yeah. so... <laughs> And then The Good Place, of course, is an example of a comedy, and it's one that a lot of people really like. I really like it. Yeah, I love it. My students love it, so I've got, I actually think uh, The Good Place has done us a favor 
we've get our students come in already excited about the concept of moral philosophy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'm going to suggest that maybe it's the most useful thing for engaging um, students that aren't philosophy majors, um, maybe since The Matrix, right? So when that came out, suddenly people were interested in Cartesian skepticism and Putnam's brain and Nevada argument. And um, there was a good long period of time where, you know, maybe 15 years you could count on most students having seen it. Um, and, you know, they were excited to talk about that possibility. I think we're getting the exact same thing with The Good Place um, mm -hmm. on ethical issues and some metaphysical issues, right? Um, sure. Questions about the afterlife and the badness of death. I'm teaching a course this fall um, on the badness of death. Maybe maybe I should just tell my, my whole lineup this fall. Um, I, I start with the badness of death course, um, then I do some logic, and then I do a course on existentialism. So I sort of thinking this is, you know, why death is bad, followed by logic, followed by why life is bad. Um, <laughs> it's going to be a depressing semester. It is. It Although is. That's, a, that's a great set of classes to teach. Um, yeah, but so, you know, I anticipate um, raising some issues from the good place in the, the mm -hmm. badness of death course. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that generally the literature on that takes this tact that the assumption is that, that there is no afterlife, but, uh, you know, assuming that there's not, why is death bad? Um, but this allows us to sort of look at, at the other side of it. One of the folks we interviewed today will make some sort of interesting points about what counts as torture. And, um, mm. you know, um, the, the good place, um, they're, they're definitely taking a sort of very interesting line on what uh, a bad afterlife might be like and what a good afterlife might be like. Mm -hmm. Well, should we get to the interviews? Yep, let's, let, let's hit them. We're talking to Stephen Benko and Andrew Pavlich. Welcome, guys. Thanks for, for Thank joining you. us. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're presenting here at the conference? I am presenting uh, a chapter from the book that Andrew and I are editing, uh, The Good Place and Philosophy. And my chapter is on authenticity and ethics uh, in The Good Place. Okay. Can you tell us more about it? So my idea is that the show, as much as the show is about ethics, the show is also about self-knowledge and how you have to be aware of yourself. You have to really be your most authentic self before you can become an ethical person. So I think the show is doing two things at the same time, trying to get us to think about who we are and then our responsibilities to other people. Are there any particular plot lines that uh, demonstrate your point? I think the moral growth of the characters over the course of three seasons uh, shows that, that Eleanor coming to realize how bad of a person she is before she can become a good person demonstrates that. I think Tahani realizing how much damage her family did to her uh, and letting, that, letting go of that baggage kind of shows that point. Uh, mm -hmm. Chidi becoming aware of how he tortures other people with his indecision. Uh, is aware of that, and, and Jason's awareness of how his thoughtlessness brings chaos to those around him is all the prerequisite for them becoming good people. Do you have a take on which one coming into it is the best person? So I'm, I'm thinking your kitty's this sort of moral exemplar, um, but Jason seems like a pretty good guy, just a little clueless, right? Um, I, I struggle with Jason's moral agency because mm -hmm. as an ethicist, you should know what you're doing yeah, in yeah. order to be responsible for what you're doing. Right. And so 
Um, Chidi should have known better. It's a mm-hmm. real question whether or not Jason could have known better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's very obvious he doesn't know what's going on around him uh, a lot. And they make jokes about that on the show. Yeah, yeah. Chidi's learning from Kant and Jason's learning right. from Donkey Doug. And- yes. <laughs> yes. Deep philosopher Donkey yeah, yeah. Doug. Yeah, <laughs> I love Donkey Doug. So what, what are you... Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm... My chapter's a little bit harder to pin down, I think. Um, I'm writing about... Torture and comedy. Okay. So, so here's where the idea started with the show. And, and, and we knew, or I knew, that, that we were doing this book before I knew what I wanted to write about. Oh, sure. So well, it was okay. more like, okay, I've got, a, I've got a book. Now I need, a, now I need something to say. <laughs> yeah. and, and so I just fished around for things that were interesting to me. And, and two things popped up, and I put them together into a chapter. I think it turned out to work okay. The first is the question about torture, about like, it's a show about torture. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. When you think about it, it's a show about these people who are in hell being tortured. And and it doesn't look like one, right? It looks like a comedy. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, so how is it a show about torture? Like, what is the torture going on in the show? And how does the show, while it's doing that, still be a comedy? Mm-hmm. Does Michael's conception of hell, right, the, the, the initial setup where... You, so here's, here's where I think the insight is, and this is what I'm going to talk about a little bit tomorrow. Oh, great. Um, imagine you're Michael, mm-hmm. and you're trying to torture people for all eternity. Or change it a little bit. Imagine you're a demon trying to torture people for all eternity. I think the best answer you're going to come up with is what Michael came up with, which is you give them a life that they think is pretty normal and pretty good, and you just make it irritating. <laughs> you just make it a little off. That's how you torture someone for eternity. I could, you could torture me for a day by, by shoving bees up my nose or whatever they, they talk about, right? But that doesn't do it for eternity because after, I don't know how long it takes, but after a certain finite amount of time, that will actually psychologically destroy me, mm-hmm. right? If you want to torture me for more than, than a finite amount of time, you need to keep me sort of intact to right. feel the tortures, yeah, which yeah. is which means you have to keep me in a state of thinking that this is pretty much a normal day, a normal life, a repetitive life. It just has to be irritating. Mm-hmm. And so I think Michael's sort of insidious idea is the correct idea for what hell would have to be like. Yeah. So it's the, the parallels between um, the good place and no exit. Um, do you think that's intentional on the part of absolutely the, the no question, no yeah. question. So it's the the so other people. Uh, there's a few chapters that, that talk about it straight on, right? Yeah. Yes. So hell is other people plus your regular routine kind of... Although, as, as the, our contributors, and I forget who they were who wrote about No Exit, uh, I have a terrible memory for, for that sort of thing. Uh, as, they, as one of our contributors pointed out, in, in the play No Exit, they come to see pretty early that it's hell. Mm-hmm. It's not, right. the, it's not right. the last page reveal. Right, yeah. right, yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, whereas Michael's game only works if you don't know it's hell. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. if you know it's hell then it's not torture when, when your house is too small. Right, right. I've heard them say on the podcast that their idea of torture is to turn it up, to like turn the uncomfortableness or the irritatingness up one degree, like just one more degree at a time. Uh-huh. And, you know, when you were talking, every time he talks about his paper, I'm like, this is such a good paper. And I keep thinking more about it. It's like, you know, is it the frog in the pot of water, or the lobster in the pot of water? They don't know they're boiling because it's just one degree at yeah. a time and it's slightly getting worse until it's just oh. overwhelming to them. And I think that's the slow burn of torture is what the show right. does. Right. 
So what, what about Michael's moral development, right? That, that seems to be something going on. That's huge, uh, isn't especially it? Especially yeah. the last half of season two and into, mm-hmm. into three. I think what Mike, Michael Schur, the creator, said in the New York Times Magazine article is that he doesn't start ethics at like individual rights or individual um, privilege. He starts ethics at our obligations to other people. And I think that's because he was introduced to ethics through T.M. Scanlon's work, What Do We Owe Each Other? Yeah, which is featured in the first season very early. Right, Right, through Higher Nami, right, that she introduced him to that text. And so for him, and he has said, it's this radical idea that our first priority is to other people, Uh, not to myself, not to self-actualization, not to self-realization. So Michael becoming vulnerable to Janet, uh, becoming vulnerable to the four humans, I think is profound moral growth. Mm -hmm. Um, And he has the most to lose, I think, of all of the people uh, that are in that situation because his whole worldview is removed from him. Like he used to think humans were one way. He used to think the, the bad place was one way. And he loses all of that through his relationships with these people. But that's the most meaningful thing that happens to him, right? When he finally, in that episode with Janet, you know, reveals like, you know, why won't I shut you down? Why won't I destroy you? It's because we're friends, right? Like that's really profound, a, a profound moral transition. If I could add, I just had sure, a thought sure. this morning. Do you all, do you all know the, the book Ender's Game? Mm-hmm. I have, have not read it. We've not read it, but yeah. I read it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, but don't pick it up until you, only, in, in, unless you don't have anything to do for 10 hours, because yeah. you will finish it. Okay. Um, <laughs> in the book, it's, it's, a, it's a far future war story, and it's a, uh, I guess I'm going to spoil it. Um, <laughs> we, we issue a spoiler warning. No, so. I, I, this yeah. a, it won't really spoil everything. it too much, but the theme of the book is that if you really want to hurt someone, you have to love them. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Okay. The, the the soldier, the guy, the, the commander of the of the future army is the only one who could win this war against the aliens because he's the only one who understands them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To really understand them, you have to love them, which means that when he finally defeats them, it's just brutal for him. Yeah. This is Michael, I think. Yeah. Michael oh, is Michael's attempt to torture the humans means he has to know them. He doesn't know he's going to start to love them, mm-hmm. yeah. but you can't help but love someone if you know them that well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so his rather you know rather than crushing and, and and twisting to really torture them the way that matters, he has to be in love with them. Mm-hmm. And, and that, oh, that's, that really that's really picked up at the end of the third season where, you know, Michael is threatened with the possibility that they will think he has been lying to them right. again. Yeah. He is torturing them. And that that look of disappointment, right, which he says is far worse than being angry right, at somebody, that they will be disappointed and hurt by him. That's what breaks him uh, and puts Eleanor in the position where she has to assume the role of the architect. That's right. This show is um, full of twists. There's a a potential twist that it turns out down the road that Michael's the one in the bad place and he's not <laughs> yeah. a demon yeah. doll. I mean, because he is maybe the most tortured. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here's here's point. here's something I can say about twists in this show, though. Like after that first twist, and which mm-hmm. I which I was saying earlier, I, I I knew about beforehand. I realized that Mike Sure is better at this than I ever will be. Right? Yeah. There is no. There's nothing to be gained from me trying to think about what the twist will be. Yeah, because no, whatever it's... it is, it's going to be better than what I can think of. <laughs> yeah, totally brilliant. So, um, it, the book's not out yet, but it's forthcoming. Is that right? I, I anticipate it being out in the fall. In the fall. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Good. So um, people will be able to get that um, at all the standard places, yep. and you can go to the Open Court Publishing webpage. Open and... Court, Barnes and Noble, Amazon.com. 
uh, conferences. Mm-hmm. The Good Place in Philosophy. We're not sure what the subtitle is yet. It'll have one, but right. Good Place in Philosophy will be the main title. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Great. We look Thanks forward for to it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're talking with Gwendolyn Dalsky today. Um, Gwendolyn, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So what are you speaking about at the conference today? I am going to be talking about comedy, and I'm mostly interested in, from an existentialist point of view, this idea of absurdity and ambiguity to kind of unearth existence. Uh, what does comedy tell us from that lens? Okay. What does it tell us? What's your thesis? <laughs> well, I'm learning. I'm, the, comedy is a little bit outside of my academic wheelhouse, okay. but I've always been fascinated by this idea of what is it that makes us laugh? And what are the rules, if any? So some Mm -hmm. comedians do not think that there can be any rules. Mm -hmm. But I'm interested in how does it reveal a boundary? And the more I'm looking into it, I think that comedy, when we're laughing, it has to A, be true, and B, it often highlights a power structure that maybe we were unaware of until the comedian points it out. Or some some aspect of the comedy. Mm-hmm. Can you uh, can you give us an example of a power structure that you've identified <laughs> as you've been thinking about this issue? Well, I'm thinking about that. Would I think that highlighting the power structure can often demonstrate what makes something funny versus unfunny. So when somebody says something that is a joke and it just does not land, um, it might be because the power structure is reversed and it's inappropriate to do that okay um as opposed to let's say when snl is poking fun at donald trump for example Mm -hmm. um that can be funny Mm -hmm. um some people might not think it's all that funny but it can be funny or whenever snl has made fun of any politician or presidency it's funny but let's say when donald trump makes a joke about somebody else let's say elizabeth Mm -hmm. warren or a person Mm -hmm. with disability it's not funny why is that because the power structure is different there Mm-hmm. There's right. a he's he's at the top of the his, historically he's at the top of the chain in terms of power and so that kind of a joke will not land and it will never be funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a good example of that. So um, you mentioned SNL and they've always made fun of presidents yeah. and so forth. Um, so uh, what was notable to SNL about Gerald Ford is that you know he fell yes. down a couple of times. Yes. So they got great laughs with Chevy Chase yes, uh, just I remember. falling down. That's all, yeah. all he did, right? Um, and people love that. But if you just decorating the tree, fun of oh, a yeah. regular person falling down, you'd be kind of a jerk, right? It yeah, that's exactly. It wouldn't land the same punch. Have you looked at um, Douglas Hofstetter's work on this? So I don't know if he's done a lot, but uh, a long time ago I saw a talk that he gave called Humor, Analogy, and Cognition. Oh. And it was essentially a series of here's something that's funny, and then the audience would laugh. He he mostly got him right. Um, And he would explain the structure of it. Yeah. And then he would say, now here's something with the exact same structure that's not funny. So it can't be structure. It's basically the thesis, right? So it's got to be something else like you're suggesting. Yeah. um, Yeah, I'm interested in comedy as well as looking at in terms of art. So with the existentialists, they were interested in how art what could art and literature do to give us an understanding of the world that a logical structure was unable to do? What What is it that it adds to understanding existence? And it is that nuance of subjectivity of humanity, the um, incongruities of life. And I think that if we put comedy in that framework of art and literature and seeing what it exposes about existence or 
maybe preconceived ideas or assumptions about what is supposed to be, and it challenges that. Mm-hmm. So something else I'm interested in is just going going back to the 50s and looking at Lucille Ball. Mm-hmm. And uh, I Love Lucy episodes, and the way in which she would throw her body into the joke, that it she made it look so whimsical and so mm-hmm. effortless, but when you watch it, and you know who Lucille Ball was, that was methodical. Mm-hmm. You're not only watching a woman who's maybe using her body for a joke, which means she's challenging in part the idea of what it means to be feminine, right? Because femininity means that you're there to be gazed upon. Um, Wit is a virtue that's understood through reason. So for her to do that and to be absurd, blacking out her teeth and to Mm -hmm. intentionally distort her face Mm -hmm. was really an extraordinary thing. And why is it that we're all laughing at it? And you can see, yes, still, I mean, uh, why, what is it that we're doing? And in some ways, I think that in the 1950s, she was able to accomplish what, let's say, Mary Wollstonecraft in the 1700s, John Stuart Mill in the 1800s, Simone de Beauvoir in the 1900s, all from different philosophical methodologies. Mm-hmm. You've got virtue, utilitarian theory, and existentialism, trying to establish that the nature argument that women are supposed to be this way or that way all of that work, I think Lucille Ball was able to accomplish <laughs> in just the grape stomping scene in uh-huh. 1956. Oh, I mean, what <laughs> she did do, because it's that representation where we're able to see, wow, and you're actually looking at two things. You're looking at Lucy, the character, being absurd, but you're also looking at Lucille Ball, the CEO, who mm-hmm. is making that decision. Right. She's the first woman to own her own production company, which I also think is fascinating. So mm-hmm. that's the two things that you're actually watching. And so in order for us to laugh, I mean, what is what is going on there? There has to be some truth to the absurdity. What is it? And I kind of want to dive into things like that. So with my paper later on, actually starting with Lucille Ball and see where some of that, that idea uh, takes us, this questioning about what does it mean to be feminine? And yeah, mm-hmm. oh, I'm have, looking have, forward to you it. You looked at other figures, um, Gilda Radner, comes to mind instantly. Yes, yes, yes. Um, not for this paper, because it's one of those things that as soon as I said, you know what, I'm interested in comedy, I want to work on this, and then there's just this, you know, it, it, there's so much, an infinite amount of material, and there's uh-huh. all these different types of comedy, mm-hmm. and it's really fascinating to me. So I had to kind of narrow it for just the sake for a conference yeah, paper. Sure. 15 minutes but, especially. Yeah. Yes, it's a quick read. Narrow it. And so um, I'm kind of working with, um, I'm working with Lucille Ball to start with, uh, giving the background of existentialism and seeing how we can understand that. But coming to the conferences, I presented this at another conference, and so many people come up to me with these ideas, you know, and that's one of the, you know, have you read this or have you seen that? Mm-hmm. And it's been extremely helpful so that in the future when I work on this paper to see what else is going on. I mean, that's really the benefit of these conferences, you know. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like it'd be a, a fun book length project <laughs> as you go, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah, so much material. Um, so you mentioned this was a little outside your wheelhouse. What, what led you in this direction? I think <coughs> it was actually, it was actually a moment I was on a flight and I I didn't have I usually read when I'm flying and I so I didn't have any earbuds or anything and I just set my book down the rest of my eyes and I looked up and on the television they were playing a Lucille Ball um, Uh episode and so I had no sound I knew what was gonna happen I knew the episode Mm -hmm. and I started to laugh anyway and I was just thinking 
why am I doing this? I know what's going to happen. There is no surprise. Mm -hmm. And I can't hear anything that's going on. And yet I'm laughing. And I think just in the world of existentialism, I have written on analyzing the literature of Camus. I've written on analyzing the literature of Simone de Beauvoir. And I think that I wanted to use it to do something with it. Not just to say, this is here's an analysis of their work, Mm -hmm. but actually take that discipline and say how can we understand our lives in this way so it was really just a matter of intellectual curiosity and mm-hmm. fun right. yeah well, i mean why way. not it's like if you love lucille ball go ahead right you know. Some epiphany yeah. all of a sudden yeah. yeah great um so we're asking folks do you have um something you'd like to promote yes I have a podcast as well. Yeah. We started listening to it and it's great. It's, yeah, thank you. Really um, interesting. It's called Drinking with Socrates and it's mm-hmm. on iTunes, it's on uh, SoundCloud and I think all that, all, all of those Easy different avenues places. in which you can listen. And it's been a really fun project. It's called Drinking with Socrates because the idea is um, my friend and I, we have a bottle of wine, we invite an mm-hmm. expert and we ask questions to learn what we didn't know we didn't know. Nice. Did, did we do it wrong? Because we put it on in the morning and we weren't drinking. <laughs> so. Well, no, you didn't do it wrong. I guess you could have, I guess there could be a mimosa there or something. There we go. So, yeah, there you go. Sunday morning. There you go. Perfect. Post-conference yeah. kind of thing. Well, wonderful. Thank you for talking to us today. Thank you we for having it. me. Yeah. We're talking to Rebecca Shearer. Rebecca, what, you had your panel earlier this morning, is that right? Yeah. Okay, and what was the topic? Um, the topic was the topic for the whole panel was uh, comic philosophy and the good place. Um, so, nice. just obviously, the good place is about philosophy uh-huh. in the in a very accessible way. Yeah. Um, I talked specifically on um, the idea of how you can learn to be good in something like the afterlife. Um, the title of my uh, paper was if you want to be good you got to be bad um so just my whole premise is that if you are going to learn to be good you have to understand how bad you are first you can't learn to be good without the self-realization of oh i'm bad to start with so you have to know you need to change Okay. So it, your your premise is, is that true for everyone? So it's kind of like an original sin thing or some such, but everybody's kind of bad and they need to, to recognize it in order to be good? Or is um, it just those that are unfortunate to be born bad? It's like, um, I think Rachel was born good, but I was born evil. <laughs> so. um, well, I'm kind of, I'm also basing it kind of on uh, Aristotle's virtue ethics of we're all kind of starting as we have to learn to be good. We mm-hmm. right. aren't really, um, we're all staring at the same plane mm-hmm. of, we don't really know what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to learn to be good. And to in order to learn to be good, you have to make mistakes and understand the consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, which we all tend to do more naturally Um, or notice more naturally like we can do naturally good things Mm -hmm. but um, you aren't going to replicate that unless you know it's against um, the consequences of something bad Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. much harder to learn from a good action than a bad action because you don't have the um, negative consequences to Mm -hmm. um, 
try to keep yourself from causing again. So you experience the badness or you see it in the badness you caused in others and you feel regret or remorse, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm thinking probably even if you're just dealing with, you know, the Aristotelian extremes of excess and deficiency, right? Mm -hmm. Even if you're just, even if there's not bad consequences to an action, but you just recognize deficiency in your Mm -hmm. behavior, right? That, that would Mm -hmm. be enough. Yeah. Mm Um, so can you tell us something, do you make any points about specific characters with regard Uh, to this? Yeah, um, I kind of base a lot of my argument on how each character goes through it, so I had Uh Eleanor, Tahani, Chidi, Jason, and Michael, um, Mm -hmm. they're talking about all of their progression, um, from bad to better, Mm -hmm. um, and also, um, within that talk about ethical dualism a lot, um. Because we have the dualistic um, framework of good place and bad place. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it is truly dualistic, then there's no bridge between it. Mm-hmm. Just uh-huh. You're in the right. good place and you're stuck there, or you're in the bad place and you're stuck there. Right. But throughout the show, we see that the characters are able to grow by mm-hmm. seeing their bad consequences and moving forward and trying to be good. Mm-hmm. Um, which disproves the idea of two dualistic realities. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Especially with Michael, because Michael should be, if the dualism was the true nature of this reality, yeah. he couldn't learn to be good at all. Yeah, he's a demon, right? Yeah. I was going to ask you, who do you think's grown the most? But it, it sounds like you might think it's Michael, I, the greatest development. I think it's Michael and Eleanor, mm-hmm. um, partly because they they were the worst to start with, and because they realized their faults on their own mm-hmm. um like uh tahani jason and Sheedy, they didn't know they were bad until the reveal which is mm-hmm. taking place between eleanor and michael mm-hmm. that's the conflict between them so that whole first season they um don't really realize um jason kind of does but he doesn't um, he has a hard time realizing Yeah, anything. He doesn't have <laughs> enough self-awareness to be yeah. good or bad at that point. Yeah, He's just yeah. neutral. Mm-hmm. Um, but since Eleanor uh, realizes right away, oh, I don't belong here. I know that I can't be this good. Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. And on her own decides, I need to be better to stay here. Uh, she has the most potential to grow because she's... Um, seeing it herself and it's self-directed instead of um, circumstantially forced. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she, you can see how much progression she makes by the way that she sacrifices herself um, by saying, I don't belong here to try to save Michael's life um, mm-hmm. when she thinks he's going to be retired. Um, so that shows how much she's grown. Cause, and a lot of, especially in like a, Judeo-Christian Western framework, sacrificing yourself for someone else's life is like the ultimate good thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so she goes from being the worst to doing that multiple times. Um, and so does Michael mm-hmm. um, because he, like when he gives his pin to Eleanor, or mm-hmm. I think it's Eleanor, one of them, mm-hmm. um, right. so that she can go through the portal um, to the judge, he is showing that same amount of growth. So, because they started the worst and realized it themselves, that's how they um, become, um, show the most growth and become the best in some ways. 
Okay. Yeah. I, I want to ask you what about Chibi. <clears throat> so do you think that the indecision that, uh, or the indecisive nature of his character uh, is makes him morally bad? This is something I've always kind of struggled with. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that's uh, the line they're selling on the, the show. That he goes to the bad place he's the because he's deserving. indecisive. Uh, um, and annoyingly I, indecisive. Yeah, yeah I, I think yes, okay. because... Um, he's not, by being indecisive, he's not actively doing good. Okay. And in a lot of situations, um, indecision results in a naturally bad thing happening because that was the progression. Because right. the, the decision is often, should I do this thing to make this better? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so since he doesn't make that choice, he doesn't, um, he's not being a good person developing his character. Yeah, I think that's right. And if you sort of combine that with the fact that he's the one who should know better, right? Yeah. He's, he's, you know, he's the the trained moral philosopher, right? I mean, he, he should be painfully aware of what his indecision does. Mm-hmm. In the way that with Jason, you might just say this this guy doesn't know, yeah, what he's mm-hmm. what he's doing. Um, all right, is this fair to say um, that this is what I've been kind of thinking? Um, that Eleanor's journey is one from Sarah Marshall to Veronica Mars. Because <laughs> it seems like she, at the start of the show, was acting just like the same character she played in Forgetting Sarah Marshall. And of late, she's that. becoming the same character she played in Veronica Mars. I mean, that might just be Kristen Bell's uh, ranges of actress. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, that's Because she's kind of strategic now. She's the planner. She's, you know, Michael's having this crisis in the third mm-hmm. season. She's like, I got a plan. We'll take care of it. It's, very, very Veronica Mars. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, that, that might be not fair to pin on her. I'm going to get my geek card taken away by saying that I've not seen either Veronica Mars or Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Oh, yeah. <laughs> forgetting whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's it. They're, they're both great. Um, yeah. So, good. Um, when's the, the book coming out? And um, what's your chapter in it called? Is it going to have the same title as your paper? Um, yeah, so the book's coming out in the fall. I'm not sure exactly when in the fall or if there mm-hmm. is a date. Uh, mm-hmm. For sure, but um, the title of the book is The Good Place in Philosophy uh, from Open Court Press. Um, my chapter, it is the same. I think I might have mixed mixed it up, right? I think it's, you got to be bad if you want to be good. Okay. That's, I think I said Great. it backwards last time. But <laughs> okay. yeah, that's the title of my chapter. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm excited about the book coming out. I'm excited to get to read everyone else's chapters and everyone else's thoughts. Um, yeah. Because I, I get the sense that there's a lot of different approaches to um, to thinking about it. So Yeah, we're Great. pretty excited about that book, too. Yeah. Um, Looks good. I asked the editors if I could write a back cover blurb so I would get a free copy. Yeah, in advance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and get to see it yeah. um, early yeah, yeah. on. And so I'm, I'm hoping they'll take me up on that. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Nice talking to you. Okay, well, that that was a lot of fun. Um, Thank you very much to our guests. And that's a wrap. Episode 21 is in the can. And once again, everything has come up Charbonneau. So next um, episode in a couple weeks, we'll be back with four more interviews from the Pop Culture Association meeting. Um, lots of interesting um, stuff going on there, so we, we look forward to hearing from our guests. And uh, great to have you. Tune in next time. Tune in next time. Right, bye. Bye.